0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, so that I don't forget, I'm going to um, read the activity, the CME activity code for those of uh, you who are um, joining us off site. And the code today is CJWP. I'll say it one more time CJWP. So don't forget to sign in for your CME credit. And um, as you all noticed, we uh, ha- were fortunate uh, to have our monthly um, Cook, Eat, Learn trivia question today. Um, and the question was about um, last week's, uh, last um, time's uh, learning lesson. And that was about um, eating healthy over the holidays. So the question is, describe a strategy you use to eat healthfully over the holidays. And from many, many um, excellent answers, we randomly chose one a healthy snack before heading to the party or buffets. And that was Jean Strawbridge. So, Jean. It's a great prize today. And it's a, it's a recipe for, um, well, it's a recipe involving chocolate and some chocolate. Uh, so, don't forget the healthy benefits of dark chocolate. Um, and with that, <laughs> Uh, I'd like to welcome Jeff Kuven to introduce today's speaker. Jeff is uh, a professor of medicine at Geisel and the uh, chief of the section of cardiovascular medicine. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Thanks very much. So welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds, and twice a year, cardiology gets to speak to the speaker. and it's my privilege and pleasure today to introduce you to Marty Merrin. And Marty and I actually spent the last 20 years together at Tufts. Uh, I came up here about four months ago to head up the cardiovascular section. So I wanted to introduce Marty to you and then you'll understand why he is presenting on this really important topic. So Marty actually began his um, uh, higher level learning education career at uh, um, Hopkins, where he was an undergraduate. And then he went to Tulane for his master's in public health and then became a medical student there. From there, he went up to St. Louis and was trained at WashU for internal medicine. And then we were lucky enough at Tufts to recruit Marty to be a cardiology fellow with us in 2002. For the trainees in here, uh, Marty as a cardiology fellow not only published his first paper in the Journal of medicine as a first year cardiology fellow, but also began what is now one of the largest hypertrophic cardiomyopathy centers in the country as a fellow. So for the trainees in here, you, you too can do this as a trainee. Um, Marty has since developed uh, an amazing career in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and also in the area of sports cardiology, which we'll talk about today. Uh, Marty leads um, the HCM Institute at Tusk Medical Center, which is really an epicenter for patients coming across the world to be evaluated for HCM or HCM-like diseases. He's the award winner of a K-23 grant, uh, has over 100 publications in this area. Last evening, he spoke to us about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm sure he'll touch on it today. But Marty also sits on the United States Task Force, looking at what we do as clinicians in terms of looking at patients as they want to become competitive athletes, or even non-competitive athletes. So Marty and, and the Task Force have just completed their updated guidelines, which were published last year. And I think this topic of who we should screen and how we should screen Individuals before athletics is really
2: topical, not for cardiologists alone, but also for throughout primary care physicians, family physicians, and so. Welcome, Marty, to the Dartmouth. College. Yep. Thank you very much, Jeff. That was very kind. As I, as I said last night in, in in the cardiology grand rounds, uh, obviously, as you heard, I know Jeff well. I worked with him for many years at Tufts, and he's beloved there. And uh, our loss is, is Dartmouth's gain, so um, it's an honor and pleasure to come up and see him and uh, have an opportunity to give you guys a little bit of an update on on this topic, which is Jeff was saying sort of transcends uh, many different disciplines in medicine, which is the assessment of athletes and this issue and controversy in a way of pre participation screening. i'm going to give you a, over the next forty five minutes a talk on this topic. I'll just tell you that you know there different ways of doing this, and, and this may be a little bit of a different kind of presentation of this topic than you may have seen before, perhaps a little bit more slanted or opinionated. Um, I don't mean to necessarily be that way, but that's sort of the way um, that we look at this topic. Um, so with that in mind, what I wanted to do first was to start with really the, the one of the most important uh, cases, I'll say, where <clears throat> which triggered uh, in, a, in a way this issue and focused the importance on pre-participation screening of athletes for underlying cardiovascular disease which is taking you back now for a minute to the 80s um, in a case which occurred in southern california which was the the death of hank gathers who was at that time the preeminent uh, college basketball player uh, was going to be a pro nba player who died suddenly on the basketball court and it was really this tragic event which was televised and and really seen by uh, many, many people that, again, put a lot of emphasis on what we should be doing to prevent tragedies like this from happening. I'm going to show you this. It's a little bit long, but I think it's, again, worth orienting, again, back to <clears throat> this kind of event to show you how, much, how far we've come as well with um, on-site CPR, too, which really did not happen here at all, which was also part of the tragedy. Again, sort of amazing today's standards where you could have somebody having uh, in a, a cardiac arrest and really get very little to no medical attention for several minutes. Uh, I think that at the time some people mistook this for a seizure, um, which obviously not acceptable. And, you know, it sort of goes on and on and on a little bit more and eventually gets taken off. And, and again, he gathers, passed away from that cardiac arrest. And so this really focuses the attention on this topic. And, and this, this issue of sudden death in, in, in athletes, you know, certainly commands our attention. There's no question. It's, riv- it's a riveting issue. Um, it, it, it is so because these are considered, rightfully so, the healthiest segment of our population, um, athletes. And, and I think the, so for that reason, the lay community Um, is really taken back and struck by events like this, and they really strike to the core, in a way, of our sensibilities. And that's why they really have become a symbolic issue, um, and they're often media-driven when they occur. Um, And so when we get into the issue of screening and potentially the idea of preventing uh, tragedies like you just saw, I wanted to just take one minute for everybody to uh, just understand for a minute what we're talking about with respect to the diseases, the underlying cardiovascular diseases that are responsible for the sudden death events like what you saw in Hank Gathers, who in fact did die uh, on the basketball court that day from a cardiac arrest from the most common cause of sudden death in young athletes, which is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, genetic heart disease, increased wall thickness, in which people are at risk for ventricular arrhythmias, responsible for at least a third of all Uh, sudden deaths on the athletic field, at least in the United States, that may be a little bit different in parts of Europe where ARVC, another genetic heart disease of the right ventricle is a little bit more common. I'll just draw your attention to the second most common cause of sudden death in North American young athletes is anomalous coronary artery, where either the right coronary or the left coronary comes off the wrong ostium and usually courses between the great vessels. And then a number of other structural heart diseases, ion channel apathies or electrical issues, myocarditis, valvular aortic pathologies make up a much smaller percentage of the causes of sudden death uh, in young athletes. And I'll mention before, again, getting into screening that, you know, that if you uh, have the uh, opportunity to be evaluating a, a patient who has a known diagnosis of one of these cardiovascular diseases, and then obviously what comes out of that visit always, almost always, is can I continue to play X, Y, and Z? And again, I'll just refer you to what Jeff was talking about, which is the most recent updated guidelines, which is just published last year, but we call the Bethesda Conference, which is an expert consensus panel which addresses issues of eligibility for sports with respect to different cardiovascular diseases. And you can see Each of the different chapters addresses each different type of underlying cardiovascular disease to make recommendations. And again, these are guidelines. These are recommendations for what level and what sports can be safe and what may be unsafe for that patient to participate in. So they really act to help the clinician and the patient arrive in a shared decision-making manner with guidelines on appropriateness to continue or not in, in whatever sport that athlete may be interested in continuing to play. So again, very helpful guideline. Um, I I use it all the time when I'm faced with uh, this situation to help, uh, again, with that kind of complex decision making. So now to switch to the topic today, which is really about pre-participation screening and can we and should we be detecting underlying cardiovascular disease in athletes. Um, And I'll start with this, we're gonna come back to this in a minute. But let's start with this principle first, which is that the United States, in our country, we actually do screen athletes. It's customary practice for um, high school and and college people participating in sports to undergo an evaluation. Um, Usually it's maybe through their uh, local uh, physician to get approved or uh, to to play. Uh, It's usually a questionnaire, which includes a history and physical examination. It's not law, like it is as we'll see later in the talk in other countries in Europe, but it's customary practice. So we do do some form of screening in the United States. But the debate, really, and this is the important differentiating point, there is a controversy and debate in the United States about whether we should be doing more than that whether we should be extending the history and physical customary practice screening of our young people participating in sports to include the 12-lead ECG, to improve and make more reliable our ability to detect underlying cardiovascular disease. And so this controversy um, is really a controversy about this pathway, about whether we should be doing that on a national level, whether the United States should have a mandatory pre-participation strategy like I'll show you occurs in Italy where history physical is combined with ECG in a systematic way and all athletes are screened uh, in that manner. And I'm going to sort of argue that this is probably not practical, um, although it continues to again be an area of controversy. What I'll say is not a controversy and I think which most experts in this field agree Uh, is is supported and should be supported is the ability or opportunity to do ECG screening in different types of scenarios where the infrastructure is there to perform this well. So that could be office practices, it could be small community-based situations, high school, colleges, for example, many of the colleges in the Ivy League do pre-participation screening of their athletes, including Dartmouth. Harvard, with both history, physical, and ECG, obviously the supported infrastructure to do that well exists in those places, and I think everybody would agree that that is a reasonable strategy that should continue because it's effective. What we're going to focus on, though, because it is the area of controversy, is this pathway for a minute, and, and I think to understand this controversy, you have to sort of a little bit take a step back. And talk about the magnitude uh, that we're talking about when we talk about screening athletes in the United States. And like screening, it comes down to numerators and denominators, which really affect the feasibility of doing such a strategy. And if we look at that, in the United States, this is an old slide. It's probably more than that. You're talking about over 7 million Uh, participants in high school sports in the United States again that's an old slide it's probably a little bit more than that it's about a half a million collegiate athletes in the United States and obviously the pro athletes make up a much much smaller percentage so our denominator if we're talking about screening high school athletes in a systematic way in the United States you're talking about a numerator which is you know ginormous and, 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 and that's obviously goes to an issue of cost which we'll talk about in a minute too The numerator perhaps is most important because it's the frequency of sudden death due to heart disease which perhaps is the single most important variable in this debate to judge whether it's effective and practical strategy to include the ECG for pre-participation screening. So let me tell you what I mean. If you look at the sudden death and athlete registry in the United States, so this is a registry that was formulated to look every year at the number of athletes that die suddenly it's a registry it, 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 it relies on often media reports uh in the in the literature to get at the numerators that you see here and these numerators for cardiovascular death and sudden athletes are in yellow um, and you can see it's been increasing over the years that may be either a result of just more participants in the united states in sports or better reporting of these cardiovascular deaths but if you just take the year uh, of the greatest number of sudden deaths due to cardiovascular disease in the United States, uh, which was in two thousand and five you 're looking at you 're looking at seventy five sorry you 're looking at uh sorry hmm. Hmm. so let's skip back on that you 're looking at seventy five deaths Per year, 76 deaths per year, which was the most in the registry uh, due to underlying heart disease. So, you know, obviously, anybody that dies is a big deal, um, and, and in no way is this number meant to minimize this tragedy. But on the flip side of the coin, we have to, you know, we have to put it into perspective here, um, and in that perspective is that these, these, this is the numerator that we're really talking about, um, and and. <clears throat> And if you look on a state level for a minute, if you look at, for example, Minnesota, where this has been looked at quite extensively, Minnesota high school athletes, I'm talking about the numerator now for a minute. So this is a state size of Minnesota, which has about 4.4 million participations uh, over a 26-year period, so you're talking about 2 million high school, mostly these are mostly high school athletes (coughs) represented here, 24 different sports. So within that period of of, of 26 years, 13 sudden deaths due to heart disease, about two per year, and here are the causes of those sudden death in athletes, hypertrophic, cardiomyopathy, anomalous coronary, the two most common, again, like we talked about in the beginning. So you're looking at, if you want to talk about prevalence, one in 340,000 participations per year, or one in 150,000 participants per year is the sudden death risk. Um, uh, at least in the United States for this issue. To, again, put this into perspective, if you look at the collegiate level, okay. so this is uh, looking at an experience in the NCAA uh, over a 10-year period. So, again, 4 million participations uh, are included over this decade-long span. And if you look at this, there were 46 sudden deaths at the in the NCAA due to cardiovascular disease so about four per year and if you just compare that to a minute of the the number of athletes in that same period that died from either suicide or drug uh, overdose um, there were more so 52 or five per year so we're talking about on uh, in fact suicide and drug use actually more of a problem at the NCA collegiate level in a way than than dying from underlying cardiovascular disease. You know, and finally, again, you know, I don't wanna beat this into the ground, but again, I think it really is important to frame this issue. Again, if you look at this issue of prevalence in young people of cardiovascular deaths, if you take the greatest number, 75 per year, okay, and you compare that to the number of people, young people that die every year, from automobile fatalities, homicides, suicides, at least almost a 200-fold difference here uh, than that. And in fact, the number of young people that die from lightning strike fatalities per year is almost about 60, which is close to the number that die suddenly from underlying cardiovascular disease. So it's tough, you know, it's tough to make a strong argument that sudden death in young athletes is a public health problem um, when you look at it compared to much more um, higher number uh, deaths in young people uh, than we have. So coming back, though, to this issue for a minute uh, about screening, and again, it's customary practice in the U.S. History and physical is what we do. And this is the standard of care in the United States. It is, in fact, in rem- and has been for a while, and remains this 12-point AHA uh, recommendation for uh, the evaluation of pre-participation uh, screening for people that you may see in the office. Obviously, two points for family history, a number of points for personal history, and there's a number of physical examinations that are recommended. This is our standard of care. This in the United States. This is what you're sort of obligated to do when faced with this situation. What you're not necessarily obligated to do is get a 12-lead ECG every time you see somebody uh, for routine uh, pre-participation screening. What would trigger an ECG, obviously, would be if there was any uh, abnormality, one or more abnormality on the on these 12 points uh, that you were uncomfortable with. That obviously would be uh, a situation which would prompt the addition of a 12 lead ECG. So, but we do not mandate that 12 lead ECGs be done in a systematic way for screening young competitive athletes in the United States. It's interesting if you look at that 12 point AHA, you know, uh, recommendation for screening. You know, how, how well do we do, you know, with that, just the history of physical alone? Um, and this is kind, kind of old data. If you look at by state, this is the percentage of states that have one to up to 12 of the AHA uh, points in their pre-participation screening for, in their forms. And you can see as of 2005, you know, there were almost 35% of the states that had 10 or less of the AHA Uh, recommended uh, points on their screening exam form. In fact, some states uh, had much less than that, even several with only five, six, seven of the points, and only a much smaller percentage, five, that had all 12. So we don't really even do that well um, to begin with, with following the current recommendations for what should be on the history physical examination. Furthermore, we have a diversity Uh, hmm. Hmm. not sure why that happened let's get back into that so furthermore we have a diversity in who can administer the pre-participation physical in the United States just to show you that diversity here uh, most states require an MD or DO uh, to sign off on these forms but many states have the uh, uh, have, have permitted other healthcare providers uh, be able to do that, including some states where a chiropractor can administer it or naturopathic uh, physicians as well. So we have a lot of diversity in the kind of healthcare providers who are evaluating history and physical exams in our in our young athletes as well, um, which <coughs> creates some challenges as well, since some of these healthcare providers are not necessarily trained specifically in uh, in evaluating young people for underlying cardiovascular disease. Uh, nor the physical examination component of that form. And, and obviously, I think most people are familiar with this idea that the history of physical, although good, does fall short. And, and I just want to make this point with some old data here. This is looking at a group of young athletes that died suddenly on the athletic field and going back retrospectively for a minute and seeing what was their pre-participation evaluation uh, consist of. And of those uh, athletes that died, about 130 of them underwent the typical history and physical screening that had the uh, 12-point that I showed you. And of those, only 19 of them raised any suspicion for underlying cardiovascular disease. And in those 19, only 8 had a correct diagnosis. All these were allowed or did continue to play and unfortunately suffered a sudden death event. But you can see... That you know, although although important and, and, and is the standard of care, the history of physical in some ways falls short in its ability to detect underlying cardiovascular disease. And, and, and one of the reasons that's the case is if you look at the most common cause of sudden death in young people in the United States, it's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And if you look at and if you look, the gap here is that HCM Um, is that some of these patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have non-obstructive form will not have a murmur and will not have a family history and will never have a prior event that would raise suspicion. So the history and physical then um, can very easily in a large portion of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy not be raised using these traditional methods and that's why you really need the ECG and ECHO in order to really reliably detect this form of non-obstructive HCM. And for that reason, What's been raised is, should we be adding the ECG on to the history and physical examination to improve our reliability and detection? And a lot of this effort came out of the Italian experience. So after World War II, the Italians decided to devote resources and energy and money to a mandatory national annual pre-participation screening program for their competitive athletes. That was mandated by law in Italy. And uh, you, know, you always wonder, why, you know, why is the EFUSI closed on Mondays when you go? Well, part of the reason is that a lot of that funding to keep it open goes to this program in Italy, which is a very expensive one to keep running, as you can probably imagine. But this is where the experience with ECG screening began. And here's the data. This is really what drove, um, it really drove the issue. And this is the Italian experience with ECG screening. And so what they published several years ago at JAMA was that when you looked at the they arbitrarily chose this as the start date to look at the data, that when you added the ECG into history physical, sudden death in young athletes dropped substantially over many, many years making the argument that the ECG was saving lives because it was detecting underlying heart disease, those athletes were being excluded from continuing to participate, and lives were being saved. And so that was very powerful, um, although you know many have looked at this a little different because some of this was, didn't completely, add, completely, completely make sense in the sense of this, is that if you take a minute to look at the latter half of this curve, of sudden death rates in young athletes in Italy, and you compare it to the sudden death rate in athletes in the state of Minnesota over that same time period, statistically, no difference between Minnesota and Italy. Okay. So then that raised the question, if that's the case then, no difference in, you know, in the US, sudden death rates in Minnesota, where we don't use the EKG, this is just history physical, versus this part of the curve, what 's driving this you know because this is very high the sudden death rate at the beginning of the curve, and so you know kind of looking at that, you know some possible explanations are that that the denominator that was used to generate this prevalence uh, is an estimate uh, if you look at this paper, so they estimated they actually didn 't have the precise denominator, so that may be one issue. The other issue is that it 's also possible that survival was improved over time because of out-of-hospital resuscitatory efforts like AEDs that were more available. So that may be what was actually responsible for driving down uh, the death rate as well. Or that this is a statistical anomaly, that we don't know what the, what, the, um, what the rate of sudden death is prior to 1980. Maybe that was just an anomaly where you had a, a spike that would be something that you would have normally seen statistically, and if you'd actually been able to look at the, lot, the 20 years that preceded it, it would be no different than this curve here. So there have been some holes poked at this data that suggest that maybe it isn't the ECG which is driving down uh, the, the improved survival. The other issue, though, is that, you know, if you, if you buy into that data for just a minute, you know, the issue is that you've, you've got to look at the differences. If you want to try to replicate ECG screening in the United States like they do in Italy, then the first thing is to look at the comparison between the two. So for one, As I told you, history of physicals, customary practice, it's federal law in Italy to screen athletes. So it makes it a little bit of a different ballgame that way. Two is that the populations are enormously different. The United States is five times the size of Italy, which again goes to the feasibility of doing widespread screening. In addition, as I told you, because this was mandated by federal law, what the Italians did is they set up a system that allowed them to carry this out. There are actually accredited Sports medicine programs in Italy, which turn out trained people, of uh, healthcare providers who know how to do the history physical. They know how to read the EKG. They actually sit in offices doing this stuff all day long and get paid to do that. We don't really have that kind of infrastructure to pull that off in the United States. It doesn't exist in our current construct. And, of course, there's some differences because this is a law and this is customary practice about legal is- issues. Uh, if you violate this in Italy, actually, it's a civil or criminal crime. I'm not sure that there's been any, uh, any ev- evidence of that in the United States of any violations of screening becoming uh, a, 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 a um, violation of, of standard of care. So in, in addition, you, know, you have to obviously ask the question of cost, uh, which is obviously the next big question. And people have looked at this. This is a a, a cost-effective analysis from from Jack in 2010. If you were actually to do what the Italians do, and you were to do that in the United States, what would it cost us? And if you looked at it as a 20-year screening program, if you went to Congress and you said, we need to do this, and this is what it's going to cost. It's going to cost, over that period of time, uh, anywhere from $50 to $70 billion to 70000000000 dollars or two and a half to three and a half billion per year. Number of athletes saved would be estimated to be about 4,800 if we added the ECG in. And the cost per life saved is greater than about 10 million. So it's an expensive endeavor to do this. It's not easy. And um, that has to obviously be taken in the context of deciding whether this is the appropriate thing to be doing uh, or asking Congress to do for us as well. Now, interestingly, after the Italian data, there's only one other country in the world in which mandatory ECG uh, screening is required, and that's Israel. And so the Israelis uh, published their experience with the ECG in 2012. And they started, for reasons I don't quite understand, but they started through legislative process as well, mandatory ECG screening in 1990, uh, 1997. And so what they did is they looked at the sudden death uh, before mandatory ECG screening with just history physical and what happened after they added the ECG in. And you can see no difference in the number of uh, cardiovascular deaths, sudden deaths, uh, between those two time periods. It's not statistically different. And and that's not really that surprising, you know, because, you know, the ECG, as we'll talk about in a minute, um, when you're talking about a very low event rate disease, uh, situation, low event rate situation like sudden death in athletes, it's very difficult to demonstrate that a test like the ECG can lower what is already a very low event rate issue. And that may be again what we're seeing in this Israeli data is that the ECG just in this kind of scenario is not enough to lower mortality. and. For that reason, I think it's still fair to say today that there isn't conclusive evidence that the ECG screening reduces mortality in athletes. And again, coming back to why that may be the case, I think we again have to now go back and take a look at why that may be the issue. And it may be that the issue of false negatives of the ECG. So it's a good test, but there are still limitations of the ECG. And one of those is false negatives. So... If you look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for example, about 10% of patients with this, and remember this is the number one cause of sudden death in athletes, about 10% of patients with HCM have a completely normal ECG. Um, In addition, the second most common cause of sudden death in athletes, anomalous coronary arteries, has a normal ECG almost 100% of the time. Aortic aneurysms as well, and the number of the ion channelopathies can also have normal ECGs. So you have a sort of a false negative rate that is really real and impactful when we're talking about applying the ECG to large populations of athletes for screening. And this is the consequence of false negative ECGs in a screening program. It's that there will still be athletes that unfortunately go through a history, physical, and ECG screening process and suffer adverse sudden death events, like this Italian athlete a couple of years ago who had, in fact, a false negative ECG from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, uh, and, 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 and unfortunately suffered uh, this tragic uh, sudden death event. And he's not alone. Within a very short period of time, I believe um, over, over several months in 2012, there were four other athletes uh, at the professional level who died suddenly from underlying cardiovascular disease because of false negative ECGs? In this issue, just to kind of put another number on it, if you go back to the sudden death in athlete registry and you take again that year in 2005 where we had 75 sudden deaths to heart disease, cardiovascular disease, a maximum, and you looked retrospectively back um, at the causes of those deaths, about 30% of those would have been underlying heart diseases that were not detected by the ECG. They were HCM that was ECG negative, it was anomalous coronaries, et cetera, et cetera. So even if the ECG had been part of the screening process in that year, there probably still would have have been issues in which uh, the athletes would have been identified by the ECG alone and only 50 of the 75. Then on the flip side of the coin, of course, which has gathered the most attention is the issue of false positive ECGs. Um, And I think that if you kind of take a look at the current criteria for ECG interpretation in the athlete population, you're still looking at a false positive rate among these different cardiovascular diseases of between 10 and 20 percent and the issue of false positives of course that doesn't go to what we saw with false negatives which is potentially adverse consequences like sudden death but what it does go to is other really important issues such as resulting in inappropriate disqualifications of athletes producing in some cases uh, huge amounts of unnecessary anxiety that come with this issue and perhaps even equally as important is the impact that false positives would have on a large scale with respect to generating downstream testing due to ambiguous gray area test results. So, what I mean by it, if you take a huge population of athletes, and even with, again, the best ECG criteria we have in interpretation, the 10 to 20 percent false positive rate is going to create a situation in which there is inevitably still a lot of diagnostic gray areas that will generate an enormous amount of testing for that athlete to try to clarify diagnosis. So I'm speaking now kind of from the trenches, and this is what we go through because we do get referrals for this kind of situation, not uncommonly, where an athlete gets screened by history physical, there's some issue, there's a borderline ECG, The next thing is an echo is done. That echo example is borderline with respect to left ventricular hypertrophy. Again, raising concern that the athlete may have, for example, in this case, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They then come to us at this point in the the pathway. And then these are very difficult situations and we often implement an enormous amount of testing here, maybe not all this testing in individual patients, but a lot of times we do do this amount of testing to try to clarify diagnosis. It may require advanced imaging with MRI, expensive genetic testing, there may be EP testing involved, and that's all driven by the fact that there is a lot of gray here when we're talking about equivocal or borderline ECG ECHO findings. And we can expect an enormous amount of this with widespread screening with the ECG because of the false positive issue. And that would create, in my opinion, a lot of chaos. I mean, I, I don't say that you know, uh, lightly. I mean, I, I, I mean that sincerely, is that these kind of situations would, in, would, would emerge you know, enough that it would create enormous amount of chaos for a screening system carried out with this many people in the United States. In addition, you know, here, who's going to interpret all of these ECGs that we would be generating in young athletes? Remember, I said the amount of participants in high school sports in the United States is about between 7 and 8 million. So, you know, if you just sort of look at this, and most of these would be pediatric, would fall on the pediatric cardiologists because most of these are a pedi- pedi- pediatric age range. So there's about 1,500 pediatric cardiologists in the United States if you if you up this number, which I think I, this is reflecting perhaps the more accurate number of athletes in the United States at the high school level plus college, 12 million, you know you're looking at an additional almost 8,000 ECGs uh, that would be performed per year. Um, 700 or so that would need to be done per month, 150 per week, we're all really busy, right? And um, you're adding on a lot of extra work, in a sense, and in a system and infrastructure that really isn't set up to take on this kind of volume and and interpretation per year. So this is another potential limitation uh, to ECG screening as well. The other issue is the interpretation issue, and I mentioned this, and there's been a lot of good work done recently in refining the interpretation of the ECG in the athlete population to try to lower this false positive rate. Um, That started first with an uh, initiative with the ESC. They put out refined guidelines. Uh, There was two revisions there, and more recently, the Seattle criteria has been um, promoted These are criteria set up by experts to interpret ECGs for the athlete population that, again, are trying to decrease the false positive rate. But if you look at this issue and you ask the question, well, how well do these criteria perform, actually? And there's a number of studies that have shown similar things. If you take 130 athlete ECGs, and you develop a panel of seven expert cardiologists and seven expert sports physicians who are non-cardiologists, for example, there's an enormous variability in what the cardiologist, even after being trained in what the current criteria of interpretation should be, uh, between the number that would can be considered abnormal versus what the sports cardiologist would be, would be considered abnormal, almost a twofold greater uh, percentage, which, again, would go to increasing downstream testing because even in the best of hands, uh, you're looking at a percentage uh, using the Seattle criteria which would be considered abnormal even among well-trained cardiologists and sports physicians. The other issue which is one that doesn't get so much attention but I think is actually really important here is that the majority of sudden deaths due to genetic heart diseases for a moment occur in non-athletes. And if you look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for a minute, there's no question that the vast majority of patients with that disease that die are not athletes and die in sedentary situations. Okay? And so this point has really raised uh, the issue about in this country, culturally speaking for a minute, could we even do this? Because I think limiting the aspiration of saving young lives with ECG screening to only those involved in competitive sports would be viewed in some ways as discriminatory and exclusionary in a liberal, I think we're still a liberal democratic society in 2005. Uh, That, this is an old slide, sorry. Um, And so, you know, therefore, any systematic program with ECG screening in the U.S. may require the participation of all children. I mean, you you know, that would not be an unreasonable point which would get us to about 75 million children less than 18 years of age in the United States. So with that said, I'm not in any way trying to be negative, but I am trying to raise important obstacles because these are things that are really important when we're talking about this issue and we're talking about it again. I'm talking about it on a large scale. We're talking about a US initiative here We're not talking about doing screening, again, in selective small venues where the infrastructure and support is there to do it. We do support that. But again, limitations. We're talking about lots of athletes, big denominator. Um, We're talking about a very low event rate issue. We're talking about false negatives and false positives, which impact on this, cost effectively considerations. And we have things here that the, you know, the Italians you know, have but don't have as many of, which are lawyers, which would impact you know, this issue too. There's liability issues with screening um, if we were to start to do it in a systematic way with ECG that are currently not part of our construct but would be. So those are considerations as well, and they go to cost as well. And, and so forth, and, so, and also we don't have the infrastructure to perform this, again, on a huge scale. So you know, again, from my vantage point, you know, do I think that a mandatory national pre-participation screening program in competitive sports with a routine ECG is consistent with the current or future U.S. healthcare system? I don't think it is, for all of those reasons. And so, as I was taught, you know, early as a trainee, you know, if you don't agree with something or you don't think that the strategy is the right strategy, then why don't you come up with something that you know is helpful here? And so, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to start by saying that, or by showing, this is my nephew, Jack, and Jack, you know, I love Jack. Jack plays for the Sharon, uh, Massachusetts Sand Nats, um, which is a, a ball team. Um, <laughs> And he's a good guy, and he, uh, you know, he's not been screened um, in in either, other than the history physical, uh, he hasn't had an ECG, and I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that because I actually think that perhaps where the focus and energy should really be directed here is at what occurs when Jack plays, at least in the state of Massachusetts, in most of the places, which is this, you know, which is the AED available very readily um, in in all uh, athletic uh, venues uh, as well, and this is perhaps where we really should, in some ways, be concentrating our efforts is the widespread applicability of the AED in all situations where there could be a potential to use it to uh, save lives. And this is not a theoretical issue. It's been looked at, and it is very effective. If you look at 13,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and you compare bystander CPR with bystander CPR and AED shock, the survival rates are enormously better with the AED, and I think as people get More familiar with AD, quicker, uh, quicker uh, applicability of it to patients that need it. You know, we'll even see more and more better survival. And 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 I'm not alone in this. You know, the state of New Jersey agrees, and this is one of the most innovative and perhaps forward and progressive uh, state laws, which is starting to address this. This is Janet. Janet died suddenly. Um, I think playing cheerleading, actually, uh, or participating in cheerleading from uh, underlying heart disease. And through her her family's efforts in the state of New Jersey, Janet's law was passed. And that is that all public and non-public schools in the state of New Jersey must have an AED available on the premise and within a reasonable distance of all athletic field events. And I think through this effort on the state level, we'll see, I, you know, I hope to have data, you know, in several years that, you know, hopefully will show uh, that that is a successful uh, intervention and in law and will save perhaps, you know, many, many lives uh, because of it. And I'll just end by saying again, given the limited resources in our healthcare system and the uncertain life-saving potential of ECC screening, I really would give strong consideration to applying preventive measures such as widespread availability of the AD on the athletic field as where we should be really focusing the majority of our efforts in this really complex and controversial area. Thank you for your attention.
0: So thanks for giving us time for questions. We'll start with Dr. Greenberg. Well,
3: thank you. That was, a, that was certainly an excellent talk, and I enjoyed that. And, and I think you've made the point that uh, teaching CPR in schools and providing a lot of AEDs could be done probably for a fraction of the cost of EKG screening. But I feel a whole lot better even about that if it were cost-effective. Because these are rare events, as you pointed out. Right. Has anybody done sort of a cost-efficacy analysis of CPR education and, and widespread AEDs? Great question.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's actually been done. I, I'm not familiar if it has. I'm not familiar with the data, um, so I can't. I can't speak to that, um, and so I, I'm not sure. Um, yes.
3: Thanks for an excellent talk. I, I love the way that you compared
1: the non-athletes to the group with the athletes, and extending that, how good is the evidence that athletes are more likely to have an advantage, they have an underlying risk factor, while they are. Intensively training or competing versus walking around and going to classes. I could imagine theories of oxygen demand and catecholamine stresses, but do the data actually support when they have their events, more commonly will they're, they're really
2: doing their thing on the next Yeah, so great question. So the answer to that is, that, so if you just look at, for example, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as an example, just as an as the example there, you know, obviously, if you just look at the disease as a whole, you know, as I was saying, more patients die without disease suddenly not participating in sports. But the flip side of the coin is that we know, observationally speaking, that if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you are participating in organized competitive sports, your risk of an event is, is increased, certainly increased much more than your counterpart without heart disease who's participating in, cardio, uh, in the sports without cardiovascular disease. So there, I think there's little debate based on observational data, that there are triggers, as you were saying, in sports that lower the threshold for ventricular arrhythmias to occur. It may be adrenaline. It may be electrolyte shifts. It's really hard to know for sure. There are a lot of factors going on at any one period of time. But I think just if you just look observationally, there's just no question um, that these low events are increased in patients with structural heart disease that are competing in sports. And that's really what led to and has led to the Bethesda Conference guidelines, which are really there uh, and written out of the to, to promote the safety of the athletes. I mean, that's not not to ruin lives, but to promote the safety because of this, you know, very clear observational data linking sports with increased risk. Yes. Two comments.
1: It uh, just goes to show what a strong lobby they have. The mothers have in Italy and Israel. <laughs> The other thing is, is that if you're going to do a cost-effective analysis, mm-hmm. analysis about ADDs and parts, mm-hmm. make sure you factor in parents. They're mm-hmm. the other ones who get so worked up at the games right. that I'm sure they're going yeah. to have quiet Yeah,
2: okay. yeah. You're <laughs> we <were> absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> Can you
1: talk about the role of deconditioning? So if you do go down this trail of hot, seeing an abnormal EKG seeing an abnormal echo, when do you ask the athlete to
0: decondition,
2: and then what do you do to follow up? Yeah, so I didn't get too much, obviously, this is talk mostly focused on, obviously, pre-participation screening and, and, and the role of that. I mean, Jeff's asking a great question about, you know, if you see a patient and uh, that patient has, uh, you know, for example, the example he's saying, is increased wall thickness on the echo that falls within a gray area for thickness of 13, 14, 15 millimeters, for example, and you're not sure is that increased wall thickness from systematic training from sports or does it represent pathology like hypertrophic, a mild mild case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So one of the strategies, and it's one of the strategies that we employ to try to make a a diagnosis of HCM versus athlete's heart is this strategy of deconditioning. Because if you take that person and you really take them out of systematic training for at least three months, which, again, I will tell you is difficult to do because, as many of you know, they don't want to stop. But, you know, a lot at stake here. So I really emphasize that, that it's really important to stop training And then what we do is at the baseline, you get echo and MRI, and then you bring them back after three months of deconditioning. And if you see a decrease of two millimeters or more in the wall thickness, that really provides a lot of strong support for the mild increase in wall thickness initially being from training. Because if it was from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, you would not expect to see a decrease in wall thickness. If the wall thickness stays the same after deconditioning, the opposite is true. It's probably more likely hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So that's one of the tools that we use. And we use MRI there because it, it just allows us to be a little bit more precise in measuring changes in wall thickness over a short period of time.
3: Yeah. What you're feeling about a 20-year-old college athlete
1: who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and has an ICD and wants to dissipate
2: Yeah, so that's another area of controversy that I didn't touch on, is whether or not athletes with ICD should continue to play competitive sports. And again, that's an area of controversy. There was a paper, there was an experience published about that a couple years ago, just a registry. And what it showed was that there were an increased number of appropriate shocks in those athletes that continued to play with the defibrillator. No deaths, but increased number of shocks. And so, you know, that still hasn't answered the question, and then we're gathering more data to try to find an answer to that. So that's ongoing. My own opinion is that, you know, I just don't think it makes sense to me to you know, to consider a patient with an with a, with a, with a, you know, inherited heart disease to be at increased risk enough for sudden death to put an expensive and complex device in them that then was never meant to be exposed to the kinds of things that, are, that the athlete would be exposed to on the competitive field. That could include, you know, blunt trauma to the area of the device. It could be induced, lowering the threshold for VT, maybe VT storm, you know. And so for all of those reasons, I I just think that it doesn't really, in the end, going to make sense to say that it's okay to do that, you know. And so for me, I still restrict competitive sports in patients with defibrillators. I, I just think that makes, again, that makes the most sense to me.
1: I think we all know that in the fairly near future, all U.S. infants will have either an Apple or a Samsung device implanted at birth. And this will, uh, you could imagine a time in which this simultaneously monitors uh, heart rhythm and mm-hmm. delivers a shock if needed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Until we get there, I wonder if there are um, you know, sort of uh, cutting edge uh, diagnostic Tips of the iceberg that we're perhaps not looking at. You know, the ECG is sort of a multi purpose diagnostic tool. You pointed out, well, the complexities of using it. Is there some other somewhat less sensitive, more specific uh, test, you know, looking for a QRS duration across all people that might at least pick the most at risk right. uh, people of any sort?
2: Not that we have that could be applied. In, in any kind of reliable, systematic way for in a screening initiative, not that I'm not that I'm aware of, no. Uh, I mean, that's a great, obviously, that would be the holy grail, um, and perhaps we'll have that in the future, as you as you mentioned, in some form or another. But we don't, we, we just don't today. You know, even with the best ECG criteria, and as I said, have been refined. You know, again, I think even within the best of hands, with the best criteria, you're still looking at a 10% false positive rate. You know, so. We don't have it, you know. Uh, so the future will, will, will be interesting to see. Yep.
0: Uh, are there
1: any gender differences, either in terms of uh, sudden death or
2: in terms of the uh, prevalence of screening program? It's one question. Second, uh, your slide that uh, illustrated the, uh, the cause of, uh, of sudden death in young people, uh, in which vehicular accidents rank
1: ranked. Much than anything else. I didn't see on um, that slide uh, guns, and I'm wondering, uh,
2: guns whether I missed it or uh, why guns were not Yeah, I, I didn't intentionally take guns off. I think it was just that there was just room for so so many things. I so you know I, I don't I don't have that number. What's that? Homicide, Homicide. was yeah, yeah. Homicide was on there, right? Um, but. Um, I don't know h- how many of those were you know, actually gun-related or not. Um, uh, but, yeah, you can see homicide is the second bar. Um, I didn't break it down specifically with gun-related issues, so I don't know. At, at this point, yeah, I'm sure that number's available. To, to
0: of
2: a yeah, to sure, to sure. No, I agree. Absolutely, there's a lot of things we could do better like that, for sure. Uh, as far as gender, no differences. Really, no differences. Yep. Uh,
1: given the extremely low numerator and high denominator, huh. even if you had a great test, yeah, the positive predictive value and a negative
2: predictive value would still be terrible. Right. Exactly. I mean, that was my point. I mean, I think that's the issue. It's a statistical issue. There's no test that's really going to drive that down. You know, and every time you start driving down, at least it might be, every time you start driving down the false positives, the false negatives are kind of probably going to creep up a little bit too. That's the inevitability of this situation. So, I agree with you. I mean, that's the challenge here. That's why, if we had a better test, you know, maybe that would be you know, applicable, which we don't yet. But those are the limitations that kind of get lost in the shuffle when people start really promoting a, a national screening program. Tim Deeper
1: still here. I am. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you want to comment on your experience here at Dartmouth as a team position? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that, that you guys have heard me. I've actually talked to Grant around before you came gave a, a little bit of a similar talk with a little bit of a different bent, but I think that the important thing that he points out is the quality control issue at the beginning, right? This is talking about a national screening program. And when you have focused screening programs with an infrastructure where you are doing it uh, to minimize false positive rates, that's the important piece. And so to do that on a national scale is not, not feasible. As well, I completely agree with him as you guys remember at the end of my talk talking about having AEDs in appropriate places. We really cannot catch all of these athletes, no matter what we do, we don't have a test that's good enough. Um, We don't have a genetic test, we know that there's plenty of issues with those we heard last night talking about a a cryotrophic cardiomyopathy, so I think our experience, our false positive rates um, with the EC2 screening we're doing is about 2%, 2 2.5%, which is depending on your population and your ethnicities and and your program. Is, is variable if you look at different, across different ethnicities. Um, but that's sort of generally on the order of uh, a pretty good false positivity. And that's mostly, and, and the things we're picking up are, are WPW, have people with you know, <coughs> ASDs, stuff like that. But uh, we're picking up stuff in athletes that we're following. We also have a quality control program and have a referral program, I think, that's helping out the darkened athletes in general from the standpoint of having issues on the field of um, cardiovascular problems. Because there's a lot of things, as he showed those as the guidelines, that they can show up the symptoms and have other things that um, aren't going to keep them participating, but you have to also help them
0: sort out. I have a question yeah. um, about the, the test that we do do, which is the history and physical. Mm-hmm. And, and you sort of implied in the US, we have a lot of different people doing the test. We don't necessarily use the 12 recommended um, points. Do we have any evidence about um, cost-effectiveness of of, it, of doing an H and P, and do we have any evidence of either effectiveness or cost-effectiveness using different strategies to make sure we do it correctly?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great point. I I don't. There there may be data that speaks to that, you know, that is out there, um, but I'll be honest. I you know I'm not familiar with it, so I, I you know would be just speculating at this point, uh, but. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, i think it's a great point and i was sort of two foot probably potentially focused you know maybe too much on cost effectiveness of the ecg i think it is fair to balance that by looking at the cost effectiveness of the history mm-hmm. physical and physical and what that really it really shows us too because i think that that would put the ecg issue also in perspective um, but i don't i don't have those numbers yeah. well, thank you all for coming
0: thank, okay, thank, you you. Yep. thank you thank you thank you appreciate it. I appreciate yeah no that was the point that was the hope at least thank you yeah I appreciate it.